That is a beautiful, new, and wonderful rendition of that psalm, Psalm 34. And uh, don't miss this, Psalm 34 and 56, both of which we took the time to read today, are like David opening his diary and telling you what is going on during some of the lowest points of his life. And David, like all of us, is living in the tension of knowing the truth about God, trying to believe it with the eyes of faith, with all of his heart, and at the same time finds himself in an absolute mess in the way he's handling what's going on because he's holding on for dear life as life is uh, unfolding before him and unraveling before him. Those two Psalms, 34, 56, we get to peer into David's journal and we get to see what he's thinking from our text, which is 1 Samuel 21. If you have a Bible or a phone device that will give you the scripture, would you look at 1 Samuel 21? We will read this interesting narrative together today. 1 Samuel 21. When I was, well, gosh, it's been about... 20 years ago now, I worked a, a summer, part of a summer at a camp in Hawaii on the mainland. And on one of the weekends, the local guys took me to go spear fishing with them. And I'm always up for an adventure. I had no idea what that meant, but they gave me goggles. They gave me a snorkel mask and, and snorkel, is that called a snorkel? Okay, whatever that, that pipe thing is. And and uh, a spear with this kind of rubber band on the end that would, would sling out and you could spear fish, theoretically. But uh, we went out to this rocky coast and we jumped off these rocks and there's coral there. And sure enough, you look down, there's beautiful fish. But uh, it didn't take long before I started getting rocked by the waves and I was getting thrown into the coral and thrown uh, into the rocks and started to get cut up and, and I panicked. And I did the, the one thing I shouldn't do in my desperation. I ripped off my goggles and my snorkel mask and pipe thingy and uh, threw down the spear and, and just was, was frantic. Well, I'm sure I was way more dramatic than it really, really was, but the guys that were there walked out to the edge of the rocks and they, they pulled me up. And uh, in my despair, they were there. They helped me. Now, in a real way, I think that that is a picture of what's happening to David here. We've been seeing over the last few weeks that David is on the run. He is being pursued by King Saul, and King Saul wants to kill him, and David is desperate. David is afraid. He's running from place to place, and he, in a sense, throws off the gear of faith and has a personal sort of moment of crisis that I think we're going to see the low point of in 1 Samuel 21 today, David is desperate, he's afraid, he's hungry, he's tired, he doesn't know what to do, and he reaches an all-new low in his desperation. Let's read this text together. I want you to see this incredible story. 1 Samuel 21. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king 
charged me with a certain matter, that is King Saul, and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, the reason I'm alone, I've told them to meet at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread, that is the show bread or the bread of presence that was kept in the tabernacle. I have this kind of bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us, meaning ceremonially unclean is what the priest is saying here. You can't have this bread if your men are ceremonially unclean. So David said, yeah, we've kept uh, women from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Now, David's totally lying here to Ahimelech because he's desperate. So the priest gave David the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and was replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, this is when the music, if you're watching this in a movie, would get really eerie and dark because there's this strange figure that's going to show up later, and this is bad news, verse 7. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed is in the valley of Elah, uh, or in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now it gets even worse. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish, when they saw David, said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't this the one they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this madman come into my house? This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher in these moments that we would know your goodness and care and faithfulness and love in the midst of our crazy and in the midst of our desperation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into this text, I mentioned last time in the 830 service that I didn't have time, but I want to deal with two elephants in the room because I think they apply as we transition into this chapter, verse 21, and uh, read chapter 21 in its entirety. The two elephants in the room, so to speak, would be this. What about the relationship with Jonathan and David? Is there some type of homoerotic or sensual or sexual relationship uh, between these two men who are very affectionate? 
who talk deeply of their love, and who at the end of chapter 21, the text says, they kissed and wept and pledged their loyalty together and, ran, and, ran, and David ran off. Now, some in our modern society would want to say, see, there's an example in the Bible of homosexual relationships that, that seem to be okay before the Lord. And I would just say to you, uh, that's not correct. I can't go into great detail. Maybe later on when another really powerful verse comes up, maybe we can talk about this more. But what you see in David and, J and Jonathan is a very intimate covenant relationship before God himself, who has in Leviticus and other places outrightly said that homosexual sin is sin, just like heterosexual sin is sin, and it's not justified in God's word. And these two men, you'll notice, kiss each other as brother-in-laws before they're about to see one another, uh, maybe never again. What you have to understand in the scripture is that we can't project our cultural understandings on the culture of the Bible. Everybody kissed everybody for every reason in the Bible. The kissing was like handshaking for men. And so there's no sense in any way that this is some type of homoerotic relationship even though these two men love each other deeply and are passionate in their love for one another, David is married to Jonathan's sister, Michal. The last thing I would say is this about this first elephant in the room. None of the words used to describe their love for one another are erotic or intimate in any way, in a sexual way. In other words, they're all the Hebrew used, words used for their love are meant to be there or are, are there in such a way of true brotherly friendship and love for one another. In Song of Solomon, the chapter about the sexual union of a man and a woman, which is beautiful and represents that of Christ and his church and the intimacy we have with Jesus, all those terms that are used there do have that sensual and sexual uh, Hebrew words for that kind of love. That's present there. It's not present once in the description of Jonathan and David. Second elephant in the room. What about all the lying? I mean, everybody's lying to everybody. McCall lied and snuck David out of, of her house. And then in the last chapter, David and Jonathan come up with this elaborate plan to lie to Saul. Uh, what about the lying that's in this? Is it, is it justified? Uh, two things. First, a hermeneutic principle. That just means a principle of how to understand and interpret God's word. The first thing to understand is we can't read uh, into scripture things that aren't in scripture. In other words, narrative is prescriptive, not descriptive. So just because the Bible's honest about people's sin and tells exactly what happened because it's true, the Bible is not prescribing that David and Jonathan should have lied to Saul. So uh, the narrator doesn't express approval. He just mentions it, and there's no expression from the narrator that what David and Jonathan have done and David's lie in this text are okay. Now, you have two choices, and commentators differ on this. I'm not going to solve it for you, but you can say here, Yes, David is a fallen sinner like us, and he lied because he's afraid, and he shouldn't have, and God's grace covers that sin. Or you can say, as some have said, that this is warfare, and it's the kingdom that God has established in David versus the kingdom of Saul, which is waning, 
And you can see that this is warfare. And so the deception is justified because Saul does not have a right as enemy of God to, uh, to the truth. That ethical principle of whether someone deserves the truth or not. We won't get into that. Those are your two choices. But I want you to know that, that the Bible does have answers for these types of things that some might use to discredit God's word. All right, just two points for you in our time we have together. I want you to see today David's desperate condition. But I also want you to see in the background of that God's divine care. The Bible is full of screw-ups. David is a type of Christ, but David is not like Jesus in his perfection. David points to the greater David, Jesus Christ. But David here, and I think in our text, in his lie to Ahimelech shows just how desperate and afraid he is and how, how, how he's struggling to know where to go, what to do. He's running from one person to another to another, and he's making an absolute mess of his life. And because he's so desperate and afraid and hungry, he's willing to do whatever it takes, including putting people's lives in danger, which we will later find out because David did what he did. Every single one of these priests is killed as David shows up. Now, maybe David's motives in his lie were trying to protect Ahimelech so that Ahimelech is not found guilty of hiding David. But the result's the same. It brings catastrophic damage on everyone because David is in such a desperate condition. And because he's alone, and because he feels such pressure, and because he's so afraid, his life is spinning out of control because he's being way more self-reliant than God-reliant. He's seeing life through the eyes of the flesh instead of the eyes of faith. He's captured by his fear and his desperation, and he's making even more of a mess of his life to where he gets all the way down to where he allows dribble to, to drip from his beard, which was very dehumanizing. And no person of authority, no respectful person would allow dribble to go down their beard in that age. David has reached an all-time low. And at the same time, when we read his journals, we know that David's living in the tension of really trusting God and trying to know God, but yet trying to take things in his own hand because he's so desperate. You ever been there? That's the story of my life. I do believe God is good. I do believe he loves me. I do believe in his promises. I have seen him be faithful in the past. And yet I make an absolute mess of my life going in my own self-reliance and my own strength in dependence on my own gifts according to the works of the flesh. And I make an absolute mess out of my life. And David wasn't even good at lying. I mean, he shows up, and, and Ahimelech says, David, why are you alone? And David's like, ah, we're, we're on a secret mission from the king. To which I'm sure Ahimelech's going, you're on a secret mission from the king. You have no weapon, and you have no food. Like, have you lost your mind? I mean, David is desperate. So he lies to Ahimelech, and he's, he's scheming and doing way more scheming than trusting and praying. He's looking to everyone and everything to find help. He's presuming and harming others, and he's making really foolish decisions because David, like you and me, his spirit is willing, but his flesh is so weak. 
and he's in a mess now. In a mess so much that he has looked and he says, do you have a weapon? So he gets the bread, the show bread that is there in the tabernacle. And then he says, do you have a weapon? I need protection. Never mind that God has been protecting him the whole time. But David says, you have a weapon. And so, so Ahimelech says, I've got the, the sword of Goliath, the one you killed in the valley of Allah. It should have triggered for David, but it didn't. He's like, I'll take that one. There's nothing like that one. I want that one. So David then flees to Gath. He goes back to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword to all the widows and children of the men that David has killed in battle. This doesn't make a lot of sense. But you see, David's desperate, and he's trusting and relying in his own strength. So alone and unarmed and hunted and frantic and afraid and lost, he's running and he's lying and he's, he's doing everything he can in his own strength. He has forgotten who he is, the anointed king. He's forgotten who God is and what God is doing. And just like all of us, he knows the truth. We see it in his journal, Psalm 34 and 56. But he's failing to embody the truth because of his own desperation. But here's what I know. There's a lot I don't understand about what's going on here, but I know this. If you're anything like me, we're all a mess. We have screwed up our lives over and over and over by our own foolish decisions and sin. And yet behind it all, there's a loving God who is always patient and kind and faithful, who is there even in David's lowest moment with his kindness and care for David. David says it in his own words. When I'm afraid, Psalm 56, I will trust in you. David says, God, you have all my tears in your bottle. You've put them in your book. Isn't that amazing to think that every tear you've ever cried, God has stored those. He's not missed one of those. This is what David in his inner heart knows about the divine care of God that is present even in his desperate condition. You have delivered me, O oh God. And see, this shouldn't have been a surprise to David. David has killed Goliath. David has done what uh, Dale Ralph Davis calls, he went to the prophecy convention. Remember that where Saul was coming to kill David and God just had everybody start prophesying to protect David. So Saul's so mad, so he goes himself to take out David. David, Saul gets there and he starts prophesying. I mean, God made a mockery of Saul's attempts to kill David. David should have known God's care was there in the midst of all of it. David records God's care, Psalm 34. Listen to these words of how David in his heart of hearts knows that God really is there. David uses these words. God surrounds me. He rescues me. He's my refuge. He is close. He hears me. He delivers me. He protects me. He saves me. He's attentive. He's watching. He's good. He provides. He answers. And David knows all these things to be true, but he sees only through the eyes of fear not the eyes of faith, but he's just like all of us. He's living in that tension of knowing the truth, but in the moment of his desperation, he's afraid and unable to really hold on to the truth like he should. We won't have the time, but I want to give you these words. What we see in Psalm 34 is God's providence, his presence, his provision, his protection, and his power. All of those David knows to be true and will find out to be true as we move forward. God's providence, his presence, his provision, his protection, and his power. 
I wonder about you today. In the midst of your desperation and fear, in what you lack as you anticipate the future, are you holding on to what you know in the Bible God says He is and does for you? Are you manipulating and scheming and conniving and lying and going against what God has revealed in His words because you're trying to be self-reliant and control this yourself? <laughs> it's the story of my life. I've done it so much. But we see God's provision and care for David. We see it in providing bread when he's hungry. We see it in providing a weapon. We see it in when he goes into Gath and his scheme, his self-made scheme, as ridiculous and humiliating and desperate as it is, God still is there protecting him along the way. But I think there's even more here that David should have seen. David should have seen the symbol behind these elements that we see in our text. He should have seen the sacramental nature of the bread, the sword, uh, and, the, and the cheering or the, 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 the testimony of the people in Gath. Here's what I mean. The bread was put in the tabernacle on a table to be a living reminder to God's people that God always provides what you need. Like the manna in the desert, God says, I've always provided for everything you need. You'll never lack anything. The bread is there as a symbol, as a sacrament testifying to God's provision. So David should have seen the bread and gone, God's going to take care of me. He's going to provide. David says, I need a weapon. And, uh, and, the, and Ahimelech says, well, all I've got is the sword that you used when you killed Goliath at Gath. And David is here hidden behind the ephod, and it's serving as, an, as a trophy in the tabernacle of God's provision and mighty power at work in David's life. David should have seen that sword and gone, oh, yeah. God used me to kill the Goliath, the giant of Gath, with a slingshot and stones. God has fought the battle for me. God protects me. God never fails me. And then the text says David goes into Gath and he humiliates himself to a point that is, is totally disrespectful as someone of his stature. And he goes into Gath and the people start saying, wait a minute. Isn't that the one that they made the songs up about? That David, Saul has killed his thousands and, and David has killed his tens of thousands? The Bible says when David heard that, it struck him in his heart and it made him afraid. Their testimony should have struck him in his heart and made him courageous. Because God had done that in David's life and God was faithful. And here, though, David, not seeing through the eyes of faith in his desperation and fear, is missing just how great God really is. All right, let me wrap this up. Here's, here's the main principle. I'm struck. I'm struck by the love and patience and grace of God. Here is David making an absolute wreck of himself, not remembering and acknowledging God's powerful deliverance and provision in the past. And yet behind David, totally screwing up his life, there's the providential, kind, good, and gracious God who is there, who says 
and proves to David where your sin increases, my grace increases all the more. And David, in your sin and lying and foolishness, as you continue this downward spiral, you can't outmaneuver my divine providence and care for you. You can't mess it up too bad that my perfect plan for your life cannot still become a reality. Is that not good news or what? Because when I look at my life, I see sin, I see manipulation, I see brokenness, I see bad choices, I see, I see train wreck. But where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I can't out God's grace. And where I have tried to mess up God's providence in my life by, by my own terrible choices, like we're seeing in David here, God reminds us, you can't outmaneuver my providence. That's how good he is. He's proving it in the life of David. And he wants to prove it in your life too. Let me close with this. Uh, this week I heard the wonderful story, and some of you have heard it too, of a dear family in our church, a single mother who has felt throughout the last few years that she has been in their family, have been in the wilderness for a long, long time. And they have felt those moments of desperation, those moments of fear, those moments of wondering, God, are you still there? Do you still care? Are you still powerful? Do you still love? Well, this week... Uh, I heard the story from this same family. Their daughter wanted to go to Covenant College. And the mom just said, we just don't have money to pay for, for that. But in faith, again, living in that tension of desperation, fear, but trusting who God is, the mom said, well, go ahead and apply. They applied. The Covenant College sent back a very gracious offer to help with their finances, but they saw it and they said, that's so generous and gracious, but there's just still no way. Our family just can't afford this. So in faith, knowing, fearing, but trying to trust, clinging on to God, they decided to take the whole family up for a college visit. When they got to the college, they were having a better than imagined experience there, and the daughter who wanted to go there said, this is it. This is where I desperately want to be. And the mom, not wanting to put her daughter in a place where she would be disappointed, just thought to herself, we just can't do it. But in her heart, she's praying and she's trusting. They were supposed to go to this other part of the event of the tour there at the college at the time there. And, and uh, one of a student of our own church who is now on the administration there, and um, I always forget that word. What is it? Ad admissions uh, guy. Uh, he said, I want y'all to come with me. Don't go to this part. I want y'all to come with me. And they sat down together, and he said, tell me about the trip. How's it been going? How's your visit? We love it so much. And he goes, well, before you think about what you're going to do with college, I want you to see this. And he slid over an envelope, and they opened the envelope. And through the generosity of Covenant College and through the generosity of Christians around this country, who heard about this girl's story, they opened the envelope, they looked, and it was a number they could do. And as Heath put over the envelope, he said to her with tears in his eye, the whole table's sobbing at this point, don't you ever doubt God's love and care for you again. She'll be at Covenant College for four years. 
Because even in our desperate condition, there's a God who cares deeply for us and provides for all of our needs. David would have to keep learning this story. <laughs> so do I. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. How you give us real life stories of broken people who are just like us. And you do so, so we can be reminded of your love and grace and provision and goodness in our lives. We worship you this day for your patience and kindness to us. Because we know our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Convince our hearts, O Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.